1: Recorded live. Good evening, and welcome to the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I'm here with Yankee Mom. This is a show where we go back in history and show how women greatly contributed to the American Revolution. Something that we were never taught, and your children are never going to be taught, and your grandchildren are probably never going to be taught. But we'll try our best to inform and educate tonight we are going to be highlighting a loyalist woman woman her name is grace groudon galloway and she was abandoned here in the americas and we will tell you how and tell you why because it was a a civil war and even amongst family members which made it even more complicated that is why we don't want to have a civil war here again. We've had two, and that's enough. So we're going to get right into it, jump right in. We didn't have a show last week, and I apologize for that, but we're back. Um, we're also going to be, going, not only with the Americas, we're going to be talking about England in the 17, early 1700s, 17, you know, mid 1700s, because she was in England at that time, and then she came back to the United States, but we'll get into that as well. So Yankee Mom is going to start our show and tell you a little bit about her.
0: Okay. This is from the uh the uh women history dot com website, which is a really uh good blog site if if you are uh wanting to know more about women not only of the American Revolution but uh other women throughout our history. Well, this is, um, this is, I I, I found her, um, and I don't even remember how now, but I I discovered that she had a diary, and I love it. When they they have saved their writings, Um, so many of the women's lives that we do, unfortunately, you know, they're they're like a paragraph in history because nothing that they wrote or... or, uh, you know, even letters to the family members were not, you know, they're they're not extant, so we we don't know the before and after of whatever they did during the Revolutionary War. Um, a lot of us, uh, a lot of the women that we've done, we don't even know when they're born. You know, I mean, records are are scarce, so this is fascinating. And it was just during the time that the diary starts um, after her husband uh, leaves. So, but we'll get into that later. It says here, and this is posted by Maggie McLean. One of the most interesting diaries written during the American Revolution was written by Grace Browden Galloway. While the world as she had known it was completely destroyed, her family history was typical of colonial American families. Her grandfather settled in Pennsylvania and accumulated a large amount of property. His second son Lawrence sought his fortune as a merchant in England where he got married. Lawrence's second... Lawrence's second child, Grace, was born in England in 1727. After Lawrence Groudon returned with his wife and two daughters to Pennsylvania in 1733, he served as a provincial counselor, a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly, and speaker of the Assembly. In 1750, he was appointed second justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, a position he held for 15 years. After his father's death, Lawrence Groudon inherited land holdings valued at about 113,400 pounds, becoming one of the richest and most influential men in the colony. Um, so they were in uh, England at the time was going through quite uh, um, a struggle, a uh, struggle. During the uh let me see, let me get this one up. Um I, I have to as I as I've said on previous shows, I do have to go back and forth on my little tablet. So it sometimes takes a minute. So I will be talking in between until I can get to the the time. So she was born in, in, in January 27, and that year, or yeah, 1727. <laughs> Excuse me for a minute. And that was the year George the first died, and he had succeeded by the second Hanoverian king, King uh, George the second. And the, oops, I just hit my page and it went all the way up to the top. The threat of a Jacobite. Rebellion, aimed at reestablishing the Stuart destiny, continued into George II's reign. It continued to be a source of alarm until its final defeat at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. As the country prospered, the king's early unpopularity, partially caused by his preference for Hanover over England, changed into a general respect. Now, the uh, the, uh, year's... uh, 1733, uh, Prime, British Prime Minister Robert Walpole tried to shift the burden of taxation on imports away from collection at customs. He devised an excise scheme, a system of bonded warehouses for tobacco, wine, and brandy where imported goods could be lodged until the proper duty or tax had been paid. The project was abandoned after widespread political opposition. And uh, as the world goes, uh, in 1739, Britain declares war on Spain, and the War of Jenkins' Ear er begins. British declared war on Spain after re- repeated depredations on British ships by Spanish Guarda Costa. This was mainly a colonial war in Caribbean waters. It was named after a captain, Robert Jenkins, whose ear had been severed by the Spanish. The War of Jenkins beer lasted until 1748, but from 1742 effectively merged into the larger war of the Austrian Secession succession, which took place from October 1740 until October 1748. So you can see, um, England was very busy. Uh, right. right. And, that, and that's right. and the colonies will, were well established. Yes, yes. And in America, the colonies were were well-established and um, pretty much left alone at this point. They were, you know, uh, they did. England sent over the governors uh, to govern the the different colonies. And, uh, you know, but they pretty much um, had their own assemblies and they, they were able to vote in people who lived there, Americans. And, you know, they were pretty much left alone during these years. George II was really busy, um, you know, fighting uh, you know, fighting in Europe and and beyond, really. Um, and in, in 1742, Sir Robert Walpole resigned as Prime Minister. At the 1741 general election, Sir Robert Walpole's majority in the House of Commons numbered fewer than 20 seats. When Parliament reassembled in December 1741, he suffered... Defeats in seven divisions. On uh, February 11th, Walpole resigned as first Lord of the Treasury after 21 years in power. Although he had effectively been Prime Minister, that was never his title. He died in 1745. Okay, so then, as it goes on, um, in 43 there was the Battle of Dettingen at which the British allies defeated the French was just one engagement in the war of the Austrian succession. The war began in 1740 when Prussia invaded the Austrian re- region of Silesia, but its underlying causes were rival claims for the hereditary lands of the Austrian monarchy the Habsburgs. Prussia allied with France against Austria, Britain, and the Netherlands. The war ended in 1748 with all these lands returned except Silesia, which Austria ceded to Prussia. And then in 1745, Bonnie Prince Charles lands in Scotland to reclaim the British throne. Charles Edward Stuart. You know, you have to remember, it was the Stuarts and the Hanovers, and uh, there were two sides. And there were those who wanted um, the the uh, Stuarts to be the kings, and you know, the royalty, and who believed that they were the true the true uh, rulers of Britain. And then there were the Hanoverians who sided with, you know, the Georges. So, Bonnie Prince Charlie was the grandson of the deposed James II. And this is a really fascinating part of their history over in Britain. I mean, there's so much of it. I mean, if you really want to get into, you know, clans and, you know, different uh, tribal areas, basically, and a lot of fighting, and look up the the British uh, history. The, the history of Britain, um, it's not, you can go for for you can go way back. Um, I mean that's why England was such a, a an empire. It was so, you know, like most of Europe and all those areas, it, they're ancient, they're old. I mean, my God, and they had so many rulers and like. But it's really good to know the history of our the mother country of the colonies, as you know, the uh, colonists were. Basically, British subjects. So anyways, Bonnie Prince Charlie, being the grandson of the deposed James II, landed at Eriskay, Scotland, and was quickly gathered an army who proclaimed him Charles III. On 21st of September, he defeated the government army in Scotland at the Battle of Pre- Prestonpans, and he then marched south. But in 46, unfortunately, the Jacobites were defeated at Culloden, and that was the last battle on British soil. And it uh, was known as the 45 Rebellion, and the um, the Jacobites were fighting to restore the exiled stewards to the throne. Uh, But they were uh, chased back to Scotland um, and were routed by an army under William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, and second son of George II. So this is this is a uh, um, you know really a lot of turmoil within the country, um, and and without uh, they were all over the place. And in, 15, in 1750, the Scottish landlords start it, it started evicting tenants in the Highland clearances. Uh, they, were, they, were, uh, they began to forcibly remove tenants from their land, usually to replace them with more profitable sheep farming. The clearances resulted in whole Highland communities leaving Scotland and emigrating, most of them to North America. Many others moved to growing urban industrial centers, such as Glasgow. This was part of a broader process of agricultural change in Britain, but in the Highlands, it was marked by a particular abruptness and brutality. And then in 1756, and this is where we get into uh, the beginning of of Grace's adult life, uh, even further on, but the Seven Years' War began between Britain and France, uh, and we know it as the French and Indian War, and that lasted until um, 63, I believe, but in the meantime... George II dies in 6, 1760, and George III becomes the king. And this is the one that you know from, you know, the Revolutionary War. This is, you know, George III was the, the king that the, the colonists were uh, basically fighting against in the loyalist. Well, the were reason that we're
1: bringing England into this is because this was one of our few um women of the revolution that were not born on American soil as a colonist. She's still in England.
0: Yes. She was born
1: there and she's in, and then she's going through all this as she's growing up.
0: Yeah, so you know, she was in Pennsylvania and of course Pennsylvania in itself um was was an interesting place and it has an interesting history that we're not going to get into. We've gotten into it in other shows, but uh Pennsylvania was um really, a, a very important colony yeah. uh, and it was populated by a uh mostly religious uh you know, what would you call them not sects, but um, different religions of you know people that were uh shunned in, in England and other places like the the Quakers and the uh, mennonites and the the Moravians and uh you know several others so and there wasn't much of an Anglican church um presence in, in Pennsylvania. And uh let's see. William Pitt, I believe, took over for was driving uh yeah, he took over for from Walpole. Yeah, um and and he's really he's very important, William Pitt the Elder. And I'm going to read a little bit about him because he had a lot to do with the colonies um as prime minister he He was a supporter of the colonies, and he was but he was also a, a you know a, a member of parliament so it says uh, he was the driving force behind the British victory in the Seven Years' War, you know the French and Indian War here. The extensive triumph was instrumental in establishing a truly global empire. Pitt was born in Westminster, England, the son of a prominent family whose wealth had been made in India. He was educated at Eton and Oxford and entered the House of Commons at age 27. There he joined with other young members in opposing the foreign policies of Prime Minister Sir Robert Walpole. This opposition was embarrassing to the Crown and touched off lasting antip- antipathy between Pitt and George II. Um During the War of the Austrian succession in the 1740s, Pitt grew in public admiration while serving as army paymaster, where he displayed unusual foresight, honesty, and refusal to enrich himself at public expense. After warfare resumed in North America in 1755, Pitt lost his government position because of his constant criticism of the prime minister and the government's war plan. However, the dreadful showing of the British forces soon brought him back to power. Reluctantly, George II named him Secretary of State in 1756. In the following year, Pitt joined the Duke of Newcastle in forming a new government. Never lacking in self-confidence, he declared, I know that I can save this country and that no one else can. By 1758, Pitt controlled the war effort almost single-handedly. His decisive contributions included He saw North America, not Europe, as the pivotal ingredient in the creation of a great empire. He liberally subsidized the Prussians to handle the bulk of the conflict on the continent while concentrating on America. Uh, He publicly identified France as the prime opponent. He gained American support for the conflict by paying subsidies to the colonial government that provided soldiers and supplies. He showed little patience with unproductive military leaders Lord Loudon, the successor to Edward Braddock, was relieved of his command after his failure at uh, Lewisburg. Jeffrey Amherst and James Wolfe, among others, filled the void with startling uh, success. So he returned to power in 1766 as prime minister and was made Earl of Chatham and Lord Privy Steele. His ability to mold events had been sharply diminished by declining health, which left him playing second fiddle to Charles Townsend, the chancellor of the Exchequer. Expert. The infamous Townshend Duties were enacted in 1767 over Pitt's protest. He resigned in 1768, and <clears throat> he uh, um, after the war erupted, Pitt urged that every effort be made to secure peace. But he, the great architect of empire, would not accept the idea of independence. So uh, he, he was he was a mover and a shaker during the. You know the the young, uh, you know, Grace's young womanhood, and as her father was um, very, you know, big in the in the, the Pennsylvania Assembly, in and in a one of the the greatest family or the most influential families in the colonies. Um, you know, it's really important to know who was doing what and why, which is why we're bringing you all this information. Okay. Let's see. We'll go back to um Grace. Uh, so I do have some on on uh, well you you get the gist of George the 2nd. We can get into George the 3rd later, but um yeah, George the 2nd was a warrior. He was a soldier king. And he was uh he liked things to go his way. And when he was um, confronted by an opposite opinion, he was, uh, he knew to, um, you know, sit down and talk with them, but he pretty much liked to have his own way, and uh, George III was um, brought up to really follow in his lead, so his first son, the first son died, so that's why George first came into being. Well anyways. Getting back to grace, I just love it. I love the British history because when you read the British history it really fills out our history. And and you can understand a lot more of why um the founders felt as they did and the Loyalists felt as they did. You know, it, it fleshes it out for you. So I, I highly suggest reading uh British history of the time period as well. Because go back and, and because people were coming to America in the 1500s, and some think even before, but that would be the North, the North people. Uh, but if you read the history of the, the, the 16th and 17th and 18th century, it really starts making sense. You know how how our colonies became a country. So, uh, okay, let's see. Okay. Her family's wealth and social standing made Grace Grousen attractive to many suitors in Pennsylvania, but she had a mind of her own. In 1747, while she was in England visiting her elder sister Elizabeth, she fell in love with a Mr. Milner, son of the Receiver of Customs at Poole. In 1751, Grace's father heard about her attachment to Milner, deemed him unsuitable, and ordered Grace to return home. And it, says, it talks about Joseph Galloway, who she eventually married. Um, it says Joseph Galloway was born in 1731 at West River, Maryland, Baker parents, and moved with his father to Pennsylvania in 1740, where he received a good education. Like the Groudens, the Galloway family had risen to wealth and prominence in the world in in less than 100 years. Joseph Galloway's great-grandfather, a Quaker, immigrated to Maryland in 1662. By the time Joseph was born, his family had large landholdings and a mercantile business. When Joseph inherited his father's property, he moved to Philadelphia, studied law, and was admitted to the bar in 1749. He established a flourishing legal practice and purchased a spacious mansion at 6th and Market Street, soon became one of the most prominent and wealthy lawyers in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Now, um, let's see. I have a little bit more on him so I can find it here. Well, let me just, um, one minute while I bring up the page. Uh, and it takes us and it should be here in a minute. Ah, here we go. Okay. He was a member of the Continental Congress in 1770. Oh, no, I've missed the whole paragraph here. Galloway was a member of the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly from 1756 to 1774 and served as Speaker of the House from 1766 to 1774. He was a member of the Continental Congress in 1774 where he proposed a compromise plan for union with Great Britain which would provide the colonies with their own parliament subject to the crown. He signed the non-importation agreement but was opposed to independence of the 13 colonies and remained loyal to the king. John Spearling argues uh, that Galloway's conduct was motivated partly by opportunism and partly by genuine philosophical principles. A resident of cosmopolitan Philadelphia and associate of Benjamin Franklin, Galloway was throughout his career a British-American nationalist, leaving the British empire, offered a citizen greater liberties than any nation on earth. Galloway urged reform of the imperial administration and was critical of the trade laws, the Stamp Act of 1765 and the Townsend Acts ne- enacted in 1767, and as early as 1765, he had a constant for a plan to end the disputes between London and the colonies. He basically believed that the British had the right to tax and govern the colonies. They should keep peace, and the British helped the colonies to survive and flourish. Although he did also believe the colonies' words should be heard. He proposed a written, constituted, and joint legislature for the whole British Empire. When rejected, he declined election to the Continental Congress. And, um, In 1776, Galloway joined the British General Howe and accompanied him on his capture of Philadelphia. During the British occupation, he was appointed superintendent of police and headed the civil government. He had a reputation as a highly efficient administrator, but one who repeatedly interfered in military affairs. He aggressively organized the loyalists in the cities, but was dismayed when the British army decided to abandon the city. When the British Army withdrew, he went with them. And in 1778, he fled to England and became the spokesman of American loyalists there. He was influential in convincing the British that a vast reservoir of loyalist support could be tapped by aggressive leadership, thus setting up the British invasion of the South. After the war, he moved to England and he spent his remaining years in religious studies and writing in England. He died in Watford, Hertfordshire. Her- 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 England on August twenty ninth, eighteen o three. I just wanted you to introduce him. Oh, <laughs> we were going to get in. We were going to get into him more later on. Yes, but you know, I'm, I was thinking about that, and the whole thing is giving this information. Okay, now we're going to get into Grace. Well, now, the,
1: because No, no, because he said he was in the First Continental Congress, right?
0: Yes. So
1: we should be telling the folks about the First Continental Congress next.
0: Well, we have to get him married first. I mean, the next thing is, is her marriage to him. Yeah, but you're already telling us when he died. Well, yeah, that was just the, the end of it. Um, he died in England. See, this the the reason I thought of this was because this shows who she was married to you know what she had to put up with once we get into her her life it gives it the context of why she was writing what she was writing okay and we we're going to get into that later because it it comes up in it so anyway grace married joseph in 1753 at Philadelphia, they had two children: Joseph Lawrence Brown Galloway, born in 1757, and Elizabeth Galloway born in 1761. This marriage to Grace enhanced his social and financial position and gave him entree into politics. Some biographers have implied that the handsome, successful, and ambitious Galloway viewed the marriage as part of his ascent to the higher ranks of Philadelphia society. A Quaker, Galloway converted to Anglicanism in order to marry Grace, and his conversion enhanced his political career. So... um, Okay, and now, also, that brings
1: up another good point. He was a Quaker. Quakers were pacifists. So that also played a part in his decision to stay with Britain.
0: Yeah, a lot of Quakers were loyalists, which to me is Strange when you think about it but they were they they just um, and then there were the Quakers like Nathaniel Green who pretty much gave up being a Quaker and went to war because he believed in liberty more than you know in the independence of, of the colonies so again it's not cut and dry you can't say these people fought that and these people thought that which was why there was so much strife within you know the colonies, right down to the family. Okay. All right, let's see. Um, all right. So they prospered, uh, but both husband and wife were strong willed, and their marriage was a turbulent one. They had three sons and one daughter, Elizabeth the only one of their children to live to an advanced age. It is evident from the diaries that Elizabeth was the apple of her mother's eye. Despite their worldly success, Grace Galloway's poetry includes indications that she was unhappy. In 1759, she wrote, I find myself neglected, loathed, and despised. Other poems describe male tyranny and a wretched wife who's doomed with him to spend her life. And in one poem, she warned, never get tied to a man, for when once you are yoked, it's all a mere joke of seeing your freedom again. Okay, now, we get to the prelude to the revolution. Despite the volume of opposition to British actions during the 1760s and early 1770s, not all Pennsylvanians were willing to support a revolution. Pacifist members of the Society of Friends, the Quakers, and German sectarians opposed the war for American independence on religious grounds. Some wealthy merchants and landowners feared the loss of social and economic status if their connection to British aristocrats was severed. Others advocated postponing military action in the hope that further negotiations could resolve the divisive issues. A member of the American Philosophical Society and its vice president from 1769 to 1775, Joseph Galloway made his mark in intellectual and social circles, and he shaped history with his political activity. Galloway formed a political partnership with Benjamin Franklin that controlled Pennsylvania politics from 1766 until the eve of the American Revolution. And now you wanted to bring up the American Philosophical Society, didn't you? I did, I
1: did. Um but I don't know.
0: <laughs> oh, society. No,
1: um, it's really interesting how all these people swing, and we bring this up all the time, all all swing in the same um circles.
0: hmm.
1: Okay, so the American Philosophical Society from their fight, uh, let's see. Um, let's see. I, I I did see that it was started by Benjamin Franklin, but let me get into more of uh why do they did they do this? This site is all screwed up. All right, I have to go to another one. Okay. All right, the American, this is from Wikipedia. We'll go to the history. Ah! My new computer. I have a new computer, okay, ladies and gentlemen. So (laughs) I'm learning all the buttons and the whistles and everything. And just like she's having problems with her tablet, I have to learn this computer, and it didn't come with instructions. Brian had to download the um, manual f- offline. I have it in my downloads, but he's been working on it to get it up and running so that I, it can be independent again. So I, I, yesterday was the first time I actually had it in my lap. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. The Philosophical Society, as it was originally called, was founded in 1743 by Benjamin Franklin, William Alexander, Francis Hopkins, Hopkins, Hop- Hopkinson, John Bartram, and others as an offshoot of an earlier club, the Junto. It was founded two years after the University of Pennsylvania, with which it remains closely tied. Since its inception, the society attracted America's finest minds. Early members, this is to me what it sounds like, uh, Bianchi a think tank. Early members included George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, James McHenry,
0: Thomas Paine,
1: David Rittenhouse, Nicholas Biddle, Owen Biddle, Benjamin Rush, which we hardly ever talk. No one ever talks about this founding down- father, in Benjamin Rush, James Madison, Michael Hillygast, John Marshall, and John Andrews. Society also recruited the philosophers from other countries as members, including Alexander von Humboldt, the Marquis de la Fette, Baron von Steuben,
0: Tuzez
1: Kuskesko, I have no idea, and Princess Daskokova. By 1746, the Society had lapsed into inactivity. In 1767, however, it was revived. And on January 2nd, 1769, it united with the American Society for Promoting Useful Knowledge under the name American Philosophical Society, held at Philadelphia for Promoting Useful Knowledge. Wow, they had long names for organizations back then, too? I didn't know that. I thought this was a new invention. Benjamin Franklin was elected the first president. During this time, the Society maintained a standing committee on American Improvement, One of its investigations was to study the prospects of a canal to connect the Chesapeake Bay and Delaware River. The canal, which had been proposed by Thomas Gilpin, Sr., would not become reality until 1920. After the American Revolution, the Society looked for leadership to Francis Hopkinson, one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence. Under his influence, the Society received land from the government of Pennsylvania, along with a plot of land in Philadelphia where philosophical hall now stands. So it was a big deal back then, and it was a think tank. Like we have the the Pew Research Center, and I I can't think of a bunch of other ones, but, um, you know, libertarian think tanks, and that's pretty much what this was. Um, They would get together and exchange ideas. And as you see, most of them were the founding fathers, ended up being our founding fathers.
0: So there yeah. you have it. Okay, so now I just to recap a little. Here is this um, very you know well-to-do and uh, daughter of an influential family in Pennsylvania, and here is uh, Mr. Galloway, who is also uh, the son of an influential family. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and they were both excuse me they were both um you know, very well, they were domineering in their in their personalities. I and, and she she was not one to sit and have the vapors. Let's put it that way. And of course he uh Having he served in the in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives from 1757 to 1775 and from 1766 to 1775, he dominated politics as Speaker of the Assembly. During the early part of the colonial struggle, he exhibited sympathy for the Crown and adopted loyalist sentiments in the early 1770s. He grew to be an active Tory British supporter, but with his influence as Speaker of the Assembly. He had himself chosen to the Provincial Congress with the purpose of influencing that body in favor of the king. So he was, uh, you know, domineering in in politics as well as his family life, um, which we will see as we go further on here, you know, it, it was a, it wasn't a happy marriage because They both had their own thoughts, and she wasn't afraid to to speak to them. And she did not agree with him very much, except the fact that, you know, they were both loyalists. Um, He was also one of the richest men in the colonies. And then during the 1770s, Grace inherited Tribbles, uh, 444 acres, Belmont, 574 acres, King's Place. 297 acres, Rishu, 407 acres, a Delaware river tract, 160 acres, and 30% of the Durham ironworks, and her wealth further enhanced their financial position. And these people were like, you know, the Rockefellers and the Astors and and Carnegie, um, you know, of the colony. These These were incredibly wealthy families and then when she but then of course when she inherited her land it became his as we have discussed um in 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 uh previous shows on on what marriage meant for a woman uh okay so he was a delegate from pennsylvania to the first continental congress which met from september 5th to october 26th 1774 so do you want to get into the first Continental Congress now? or uh, um, I, I, It has a little brief thing here. The Congress was attended by 56 members appointed by the legislatures of 12 of the 13 colonies. Georgia did not send any delegates. The Congress met briefly to consider an economic look out of race trade, to publish a list of rights and grievances, and petitioning George III for redress of these grievances itself. So, Okay, yeah, I do want to talk
1: about the First Continental Congress. and it's Actually, this piece that you had given me has Joseph Galloway in it as well. So, this is from USHistory.com. First Continental Congress. The idea of an intercolonial meeting was advanced in 1773 by Benjamin Franklin. You notice Benjamin Franklin is uh, very involved in all of this stuff. Um, but failed to gain much support until after the Port of Boston was closed... The response to the Boston Tea Party. When in May 1774, the Boston Committee of Correspondence circulated letters urging the colonies to stop trading with England, the response from New York's Committee of 51, where the discussion was dominated by merchants, declined to participate in a boycott of English trade and suggested instead a Continental Congress. Quote, Upon these reasons, we conclude that a Congress of deputies from the colonies in general is of the utmost moment that it ought to be assembled without delay, and some unanimous resolution formed in this fatal emergency, not only respecting your deplorable circumstances, but to the security of our common rights. We have brought this up more uh, in previous shows, Yankee Mom and I, that this, it, was a, it was an economics war as well as a civil war. This is a very complicated war. It wasn't just straightforward. And a lot of people had stakes in the game, and one of them were the merchants because that's how they made their living. And even though, and we brought this up, that Samuel Adams was one of the wealthiest merchants in Boston or even in the colonies, he, want, he wholeheartedly wanted to get away from England. And he knew he would lose everything if he was going to, but he did. He wanted to anyway. So just a little aside, um, On May 27, 1774, the Virginia House of Burgesses proposed a Continental Congress. A special convention was held on August 1st to elect delegates to the meeting in Philadelphia the following month. Thomas Jefferson, a delegate from Albemarle County, introduced a summary view of the rights of British America. It failed to gain the support of the Virginia Convention, but it brought attention to Jefferson as an exponent of the American cause. Another side, the Yankee Mom, I just want to bring out. Brian and I highlighted John Jay on our um, show, what, last night or night, last show? And John Jay, we brought up, every time, he, he, was, he was actually one of our first um, chief justices. He was the first chief justice. He was amazing. And he, every time they would, he would go, I think he was an ambassador, and then he came back. Every time he came back, they appointed him. He came back, he was president of something. They didn't even tell him. Same with Jefferson. They did the same thing with him in Virginia, right? Yep. (laughs) They didn't even tell these guys. They just said, you know what, you're going to be this, you're going to be that, you're going to be this. And I said, fine, you know, not even a letter, really? They couldn't even have sent him a
0: letter? I know, I know. They sent someone to their house sometimes and said, okay, you know, you've been nominated, you've been appointed. You know, and, and we will not take no for an answer. No matter how much you whine about it. <laughs> <You're laughs> that's
1: that's the, ty- the but that's the type that's the type of people you want in office, thank you, Mom. You want somebody to go in kicking and screaming but they don't want to be there. I know. It's the ones that do you gotta watch out for. I mean these people they they die in office now. They literally die in office. Yes. Okay, so. They have no conscience. The first
0: comment are a people, that's why a lot of the people left the Congress. They didn't come back. They didn't want to come back. They ran away. They No, 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 because they were so disgusted by it, which shows that they were, you know, men of integrity and honor. On May
1: 27, 1774, the Virginia House of Burgesses, Oh, no, I did that already. The First Continental Congress convened Philadelphia's Carpenter's Hall on September 5, 1774. Twelve of the 13 colonies sent delegates. Georgia decided against rolling the waters. They were facing attacks from the rusted creek on their borders and desperately needed the support of regular British soldiers. The Congress, which continued... And we brought up Georgia before. They were the last Jordan party. The Congress, which continued in session until late October, did... Not to advocate independence. They sought rather to right the wrongs that had been inflicted on the colonies and hoped that a unified voice would gain them a hearing in London. Joseph Galloway of Pennsylvania, representing conservative views, introduced a plan of union great, of Great Britain and the, and the colonies, which began on a highly conciliatory note. And again, we've brought this up over and over and over again. We went kicking and screaming into the Revolutionary War. We tried everything, and that is exactly where we are right now. History is repeating itself as we speak. Okay, this is what he said. Resolve that this Congress will apply to his majesty for a redress of grievances under his faithful subjects in American labor and ensure him that the colonies hold in abhorrence the idea of being considered independent communities on the British government and most ardently desire the establishment of a political union, not only among themselves, but with the mother state, upon upon two principles of safety and freedom, which are essential to the constitution of all free governments, and particularly that of the British legislature. Galloway's plan was well received by many delegates, but was, was supported by only five colonies, against six opposed. Galloway's tendency towards compromise was soon eclipsed with the arrival of the Suffolk Resolves. Some of the most prominent figures of the era were among the 55 delegates in attendance, including George Washington, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, John Jay, and John Dickinson. They were mostly people of social standing and made their living from trade, farming, and the law. Many were initially unknown to one another, and vast differences existed on some of the issues. But important friendships flourished. Frequent dinners and gatherings were held, and were attended by all except the Spartan Sam Annuals. Um, Let's see. Well, then it has all of this. uh, The the things that they did were it was Galloway's plan of union of Great Britain and the colonies. Then they did the Suffolk Resolves, uh, and then they did the Association. This is this is the the. like minutes of what they did, um, declaration of rights and grievances, and then they set up future meetings, um, and when they would meet again. So that was
0: the first Continental Congress. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this goes into a little bit. Um, it just basically sums up what his uh, ideas were, and you know, at the Congress. Uh, Joseph Galloway opposed independence for the American colonies, who introduced a sweeping plan that was intended to reconcile problems between the colonies and the mother country. His plan provided for an American Grand Council elected by the colonial legislatures and possessing wide powers over intercolonial political affairs, a President General appointed by the Crown, a mutual veto by Parliament and the Council over legislation passed. By either affecting the colonies um yeah and this is this is the thing at this time in the in the colonies especially in massachusetts where you know boston was getting hit and the port closed and all this other stuff um and the troops were there they were already there there uh but he uh, king george sent over more um and lord north was was now the prime minister and he uh he, he was—he wasn't a bad man. He just, you know, he was a crown guy and Parliament, all that. But um, what was going on was the king was sending over governors. They had disbanded the, the colonial legislatures and assemblies, and um, and the governors were were basically from Britain. They weren't well. Hutchinson was from, Britain. he was. He, he was an american uh, but you know they got rid of him because he was a crown guy, and he was you know took his orders from the crown as governor so that is the oh i mean it just shows you know and, and like Susan says, if you read the the notes Madison notes on the the um, constitution, constitutional uh convention um you can understand the uh m- you know better the the differences of opinions that were on that floor you know is they were they were i mean if you can go, if you go to the the uh, archives.gov and look up the um the i mean they they have the records of the continental or the the congresses all the way back and if you read I mean, they were disagreeing with each other all the way through, you know, like they are today. I mean, there were the ones who thought this and the ones who thought that, you know, and the North and the South were very different, even in those days. So it's really, I, it's amazing we made it. <laughs> Gosh.
1: So anyway. Well, also, also if, they, if the folks don't want to read and they just want to listen, they can go to listen to... The Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us, it uh, is the convention um, from day one, every single day, done by three scholars, and you can listen to it. You can download it, put it on your MP3 player, or whatever, but um, it's, it's just the facts. No politics at all. had to plug that.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. All right. The plan was not only rejected by Gal you know, the Galilee's plan, it was expunged from the published proceedings of the Congress. I mean that imagine the blow to his pride. I mean here he is, you know, one of the the uh, most important people in, in Pennsylvania, and you know, not only Philadelphia, but whole Pennsylvania and they said no and they even erased it. You know, like, just no embittered galloway refused to serve in the second congress he retired to his home where ben franklin visited him and tried in vain to win his support for colonial rule the colonists at the second continental congress convened the following year to organize the defense of the colony after they issued the declaration of Independence in early july 1776 galloway fearing for his safety fled to the british camp in new brunswick and remained loyal to the king Thus, Grace became the wife of a prominent Loyalist who was considered one of the greatest traitors to the American cause. You want to talk about the second con, con- uh, the second Congress?
1: Yes, I do. <laughs>
0: okay. You have to. You have to. Susan is not feeling well tonight, and she she's really doing a valiant job here. This is a lot of information, and she's trying not to cough on air. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm sitting here, and I know this is going to gross people out. I'm sitting here drinking
1: cayenne tea. There you go. And if I love, you know, I like spicy stuff, and uh, if you can get past, if you can get past it, it's really good for you.
0: I mean, it's really,
1: really good for you.
0: <laughs> yes. yes. And I
1: can. I've I've done this before, and. I'm... I'm a tea drinker anyway, so. I'm a wuss. I can't. So. <laughs> All right. So, the Second Continental Congress, before adjourning in late October 1774, the First Continental Congress had provided for re- reconvening at a later time if circumstances dictated. The skirmishes at Lexington and Concord in April 1775 and the gathering, just, I'm going to... I I'm going to make it bigger. Okay. And the gathering of an American army outside of Boston provided sufficient impetus to assemble the delegates at the State House in Philadelphia. The first meeting convened on May 10, 1775, the same date as the American capture of Fort Ticonderoga. The Second Continental Congress was presided over by John Hancock, who replaced the alien Pentian Randolph and included some of the same delegates as the first, but with such notable additions as Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Joseph Galloway, the Pennsylvania conservative, was not in attendance. All of the colonies sent delegates, although the Georgia de- delegation did not arrive until fall. <clears throat> Excuse me. At this time, as time passed, the radical element that included John Adams... I, I, don't, I wouldn't call John Adams a radical,
0: would you? <laughs> Yes, he didn't start out as one, but he became um it, remember it was his speech that got the people really going in the in the Congress um when they were starting to um you know really back off from the idea of fighting for independence. And he stood up and he spoke from his heart and and after he he saw, you know, what they did in Boston. I mean, Boston um the uh the massacre, you know, uh, and and what followed afterwards really made him angry, and he became one of the most stalwart patriots. He was, you know, a little. He didn't like the French. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, so let's see. Okay, it's time past radical elements that include John Adams. Daniel Adams, and Richard Henry Lee, began to eclipse the more conservative faction represented by John Dickinson. Nonetheless, many of the delegates expected at the outset that the rupture between colony and mother country would be healed. Again, we were trying not to do this. The Congress lacked the legal authority to govern, but boldly assumed that responsibility. So what they did is they took up military matters. On June 15th, Congress assumed control of the army and camps outside of Boston. John Adams labored hard among his fellow Northerners to gain support for George Washington as the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Um, Statements of position. The Congress went to great lengths to offer a philosophical justification for its participation in the war. In early July, approval was given to Dickinson's Olive Branch Petition, a state of abiding loyalty to the king but disapproval of the actions of his ministers and parliament a stronger statement followed on july 6 1775 the declaration of the causes and necessity of taking up arms which held out the possibility of independence if american's rights were not restored uh financing the war the congress attempted to pay for the for the conflict by issuing paper certificates see we did have paper money people Paper money is not new. And by borrowing from domestic and foreign sources, the continental currency and its stated issues, the continental currency and its state-issued equivalents depreciated sharply in value and sparked a debilitating inflammatory period. Paper money does not work. It's going to happen to us again because it's just not sustainable. There's nothing to back it up. The effort to raise money for paying soldiers and purchasing arms and supplies remained a problem for much of the war, which we brought that up over and over again, poor George Washington. Independence. Richard Henry Lee's resolution, so June 1776, promoting independence, reflected change in public opinion on the matter of retaining ties with Britain. This measure was adopted by Congress and then fleshed out in Jefferson's declaration. He was not the only one to write the Declaration of Independence, as a matter of fact, he was he was really we've read it on air I, not on not on this show but we've read his version of the declaration. He what, he slammed Britain. He slammed King George. They they the committee of five took a lot of his language out because it was just over the top. I mean, a couple of things I, I agreed. Why they take this out? They should have kept this in. But have you ever read his declaration, that the Yankee mom?
0: Yes, yes, and I read about. Um, the uh the, the the reasons behind it. You know, it it basically comes down to Yeah, that's gonna really upset certain colonies and that's gonna upset other colonies and we just really wanna go for this and we don't wanna you know, we don't wanna upset people so that they won't even think about um you know, it was basically they were trying to be diplomatic. More so than Jefferson would
1: have liked. It's funny too, because he ends up being a diplomat. I
0: know. I know. I know. I know. He was a complex man. People don't realize that. They think he was just, you know, the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence and then went to France. Um he was and, and had, you know, and raped slave women. Uh, which is untrue. Um he was very complex and his his feelings changed over the course of his his life. You know, like you know, they call him a deist. He wasn't always a deist, but he had such a scientific bent to his mind, you know, he, he could see the science within God. So that's just a little side note on Jefferson because he's one of my favorite uh founding fathers. Yeah, well
1: again, there's a lot of a lot of wrong information about Jefferson. He absolutely believed in God. I mean they all did. Yeah, gosh. Okay. So that was independence. They also opening of diplomatic channels. In seventeen seventy six Philistine was dispatched to France where he successfully secured civilized arms. And the services of a number of experienced european military officers this was all done under the table because france didn't know france hated england so any way they could destroy england they were going to do it um but they didn't want to and this is the whole thing about a formal declaration of war they didn't want to side with america outright because they weren't sure that they had a, a, a chance in hell that they were going to win they needed assurances that they were going to win because once they sided with America, what they were actually saying, and this is why the president can wage war, but the Congress has to declare war. Because once you declare war, you are saying that anybody that's allied with the person that the country that you declared war on, you are also declaring war on them. But yeah. if we, they need to have an army go over somewhere, like Jefferson did with the Barbary Pirates, yes, we will fight fuzzy muzzies forever. Um. He could do so because, look, Congress can't even get anything straightened out, and they knew that back then. They were like, look, it's going to take, like, what, 100 days or 200 days, and we need, you know, people are being attacked now. We need to have them be rescued or, you know, fight back now. We can't wait 100 days for them to deliberate. So even you, yes, libertarians, you get it wrong. The president as commander-in-chief can wage war. But he can't declare war. Congress has to because of what I just explained to you. Did that make sense to you, Yankee Mom?
0: Yes, yes. And that's the thing, that he also has to go to Congress it, within 30 days or 60 days um, to get the approval.
1: Yeah, I think Jefferson was doing it for, like, a year before he decided to, to go tell them. I mean, they knew it was all happening, but this is all formal stuff. And it's formal yeah.
0: because this is how countries have to operate. So that they have legitimacy. You have to have rules, you know. So, like I said, everybody has their own thoughts on things. These people just, you know, a lot of them didn't agree that the sky was blue, you know. So you had to, uh, you had to come up with, with rules, the
1: standards that you would. Well, have and the make. other thing that we can bring up also, because we're talking about the Congress and independence, this nonsense that the the senate can give up its power to the president it's completely unconstitutional it's unlawful and they should all be in jail
0: yes it is not
1: they cannot do that they cannot tell the president he can make agreements no no nope. no 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 and no and a lot of these people they again why is hillary walking around she needs to be in jail they do oh yeah yeah
0: yeah no i there's so much so much corruption. Um, uh, uh, we well, well, have an attorney general who's trying to take our, away our, to, to, he's threatening to arrest us under First Amendment, uh, you know, under speech, you know, like we can't say well, certain things about. Well, that. I mean, think, think about it. Why would
1: the founding fathers, when I'm talking about the Senate giving up their powers, why would the founding fathers want the president to have so much power they might as well have been back under King George the Third.
0: Exactly. I mean, we might as well be back. Yes, we do. We have an oligarchy, if anything. Yeah. And look that up in your dictionary. You'll realize how true it is.
1: Okay, so back to what they did. Um, let's see. And I think we've discussed. Uh, I don't think we told the folks, thank you, Mom. This is probably going to be a part two, because we're, like, not even halfway through it.
0: No, I know. This is, yeah, there was a lot within this one woman's life. I mean, you know, the branches just kept coming out. (laughs) It's marvelous.
1: So, so the, the France was helping us, um, and the services of European military officers. His mission was later supplemented by Arthur Lee and Benjamin Franklin and resulted in the conclusion of the Franco-American Alliance in 1778. Now, some of the they, legislation they did, Congress lacked the authority to pass binding legislation, but did approve non-binding resolutions. The delegates could ask the states to provide money, supplies, and men for the war effort, but the states were free to accept, reject, or modify these requests. The Congress recognized that a successful prosecution of the war necessitated stronger central authority. In July 1776, a proposal, the Articles of Confederation, was introduced and sparked lengthy debate before adoption in November 1777. Ratification of the Articles by the states was not completed until 1781. The Articles of Confederation they did not work. Despite these accomplishments, much of the Congress's time was spent in regional feuding. Infant political parties began to emerge. Usually the states of Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia worked together, often in opposition to the wishes of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. And was it Maryland? Who was the biggest pain in the butt? I think it was Maryland. Like, they kind of rejected everything. Um, <clears throat> And, of course, that had to do with the northern states being completely different than the southern states, you know, agricultural, culturally, um, trade-wise, you know. Again, what you said, Yankee Mom, it's amazing we came together.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, so, now, Rhode Island was the one that was a pain in the butt. Rhode Island like said no to everything. The middle states swung from one side to the other depending on the issue under consideration. And that would be um, Pennsylvania, that would be Maryland, Delaware. I don't know, one of the little tiny states that are now a state, the smallest one that we have in the Union would just like would not go to anything. Further confusion was added to the deliberations of Congress by recurring military threats the approach of British armies forced several changes of meaning location during the course of the war. They were constantly running this, this Congress because the British were coming, right?
0: Yep. Or dress of, you know, they didn't actually I mean, how would change his mind, yeah, and then uh the the next guy there, um Button, he would change his mind and but they would the Congress would, would hear that they you know, the British are coming at check, you, you know and they'd take off both the places. New York, Maryland. Okay, that's it for the Continental okay. Congress. All right. So that he refused to attend because he was embittered because they funged his land. All right, now, let's see, where are we here? Um, as I let my little page come up. Okay, all right, in December uh, in December 1776, Galloway went to New York and joined the British Army. There he became an advisor to General William Howe, telling him inaccurately that 90% of Americans would support suppression of the revolution. Ah, so he's the one. Because, you know, how we kept reading about, you know, they they really thought there would be all all these loyalists in in, uh, South Carolina and North Carolina, and they just never show up. Um, Galloway accompanied General Howe when he had occupied Philadelphia in September 1777. During the British occupation, Galloway was appointed superintendent of police and superintendent of the port, which gave him a vast array of powers that he used against the rebels. He had a reputation as a highly efficient administrator, but one who repeatedly interfered in military affairs. He aggressively organized the loyalists in the city. The Pennsylvania Assembly passed an act of a tender attainder in march 6, seventy eight that required alleged loyalists to face trial or risk forfeiture of their estate. The assemblies hoped to pay the cost of government and the war with funds produced by the sale of loyalist property, and they did uh, a lot of the loyalists uh, you know they 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 thought coming. And they they abandoned their estates or their farms or whatever and fled to uh, Canada. And we've discussed that um, on many occasions, as we've done. Uh, Loyalist women, um, or they went back to England. You know, they get on it if a if a ship was uh, a British ship was returning to England. They would uh, seek passage. And the British did take many back to England. Uh, I mean. It, gosh, in the beginning, in the first few years of the war, what was it, Um, how many, 10,000 loyalists, I believe it was, uh, abandoned the colonies, and then, of course, in in the end of the war, many more went. Um, Okay, so now we get to abandoned in Philadelphia. Okay, okay. when General Howe resigned, the new British commander, General Henry Clinton, moved the army from Philadelphia to New York in June 1778. Fearing for his safety, Galloway fled behind the British lines, taking with him their only surviving child, Betsy. In October 1778, they sailed for London, where he continued to urge the British to put down the rebellion. They assumed that the British would prevail. Grace Galloway stayed behind like many loyalist wives, to save their property and to claim the land she had inherited from her father, which he hoped to pass on to Betsy. All she needed to do in her family's absence was to retain control of their property and business interests, and she initially relied on her husband's friends and business partners for advice. Okay, now we get to the diaries. Uh, She wrote her diaries during the years 1778 and 1779 while she remained alone in Philadelphia to fight for legal recognition of her rights to her own property. But the Pennsylvania Assembly convicted Galloway of high treason, and Grace soon learned that all of their property had been confiscated and she would soon be evicted from her home. Okay, so now it's going to take me a minute to bring up her diary because I, I you know, it's my little tablet, and anybody who has a little tablet, um, Understands that you know you can't just move from here to there. So I will well, talk to this. <laughs> well, I did want to bring up that I'm pretty
1: sure this is the only woman loyalist that was abandoned. Most a lot, most of the uh, the abandoned and the, and the women staying behind were on the American Patriot side, so that the men could go off to war, not on oh, the loyalist yeah.
0: side. Oh, that's- they, no, there, there were a lot of um, loyalist women who stayed behind as their husbands took off, either to fight with the British or to flee to England. Yeah, there were quite a few, uh, to, you know they wanted them to retain their land, so they they left and left. A lot of them uh, left the, the wife with the children there in the colonies to to keep the home fires burning. I don't think I would like that. That would have upset me. Okay, so let's see. We'll get to the, uh, this is the Diary of Grace Broughton Galloway, and it's from, um, uh, Oh, I don't have the, uh, for permission to use the diary, Raymond C. Werner. Ph.D., desires to express his gratitude to Lady Grace Dennis Burton, the great-great-granddaughter of Joseph and Grace, Browden Galloway, who so graciously graciously placed at his disposal not only the original diary but also the notes of Sir Charles Burton. So this is from the Pennsylvania uh, Journal, um, from the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. So it starts off um, Wednesday the 18th, and she doesn't say you know she doesn't she just goes friday the 19th or something she doesn't give the year she doesn't give the month so i'm just we're starting here and she basically just talks about she she um she says wednesday the 18th this even parted with my dear husband and child uh so her husband and child, Bessie, have left for New York to uh, get to the the um, the British ship that would take them to England. Uh, and, um, and then she tells she she always tells who visited her and she had many people. So you'll you'll uh, you'll hear these names: Sucky Jones and Sidney Howell and uh, Owen Jones, and Jack Redmond, Thomas Stapler. You'll, you'll hear all these names throughout. These were her friends and her, her husband's business associates. So, um, And then Thursday, the 18th, the American troops came into town. Friday, the 19th, was warned by Peel, that is uh, a very influential uh, man that she asked um, to... Be uh, her advocate to save her property. Um, warned by Peel that he must take possession of my house for ye Uh Let's see. Okay, and then uh, Mr. West came the Saturday twentieth. Mr. West, Peel again, Colonel Morgan, Major Major Franks, and General Arnold. Uh, came with an insurance of protection, Uh you know, for her. She's she's um, just beginning to hear, as her husband has left and then, you know, he's got to leave because he's just been, you know, uh, branded a traitor. Uh, so he's got to leave. And she is now sitting in her home in Philadelphia, uh, Let's see. Okay, the, the, uh, Charles Wilson Peel, this was the artist, the one that, you know, you hear about who did so many portraits, but is one of the agents for confiscated estates in the city of Philadelphia. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know he did that. So this was really interesting. Uh, and she and the the General Arnold that she talks about is Benedict. Arnold, because he was made commandant of Philadelphia by Washington on the American occupation of the city, um, Brigadier General John Caldwell of the Pennsylvania Militia also visited her. So this is this is kind of tricky because, uh, it, I mean, she writes every day, but a lot of it is just um, who visited her, and so I have to go down. Uh yeah I mean she you know she has things like mr Lawrence and tom lawrence and, and states here ye English are beaten ye jerseys, Sidney Howell and I went and sat at Turner's door in the evening the the excessive heat, so you know it's kind of a it's uh i mean she was also visited by the Secretary of the Continental Congress Charles Thompson and um yeah, so she had a lot of She was really well-known and very important, of course. Um, let's see. It being the anniversary of the... Okay, on Saturday the 4th, Uh, she talks about great rejoicing but no illuminations, it being the anniversary of independence. And the reason that she said that was it was the request of Congress owing to the scarcity of candles and the excessive heat of the season so provision was made for a decent celebration at the City Tavern, which of course was, you know, the main tavern, the great uh tavern in Philadelphia. So, um, let's see. All right, Friday the tenth, she writes, Joan girls here in the afternoon and told me twelve friendships of the line of the line was gone for New York, and I was quite mad with Howe for betraying us to the provincials as it was in his power to have settled the affair. Mr. Chu here at night, he does not seem so kind as at first and told me he could not come often as he was afraid. Mrs. Redmond and Tom here, I could not get rid of her. She has. she has um she really lets you know who she likes and doesn't like. I she's just blunt as hell, I love it. Um nurse at the generals all day they had a, a nurse was one of her uh servants or Somebody who stayed at her house. Nurses the, the generals all day they had a turtle sent me some soup. Two girls here at night told me the roebuck was taken. They boast of the kindness of English officers and I was very low and mad to think we that are ruined by them was the least noticed. Everything wears a gloomy appearance and quite low. The next day, um, the 12th, Sunday, was very unwell in the morning, and the French ambassador came this day. I looked out and saw the cannon and soldiers, and I thought it was like the execution of my husband and hurried away determined to see no more of it. But Nancy Clifton came, and I went down to her, and she told me the Roebuck was not taken, which raised my spirits, and I looked out and saw the contemptible sight. There was 82 men drawn up before the generals in our house on the opposite side of the street under arms. And General Caldweller and Mr. Morris with some of the aides-de-camp came with them. There was one coach and three chariots with the French count and his legion of horse, which consisted of no more than eight, beside an officer or two. He and his legion rode before, and when they alighted at the generals', there were 13 cannons fired which was placed just by Mrs. Turner's nurse in there. Nancy Clifton dined with me, Mrs. Craven with me in the morn. Sucky Hudson, or Suki, and Nancy Jones and Sidney Howell here in the evening got out the things they think to take to New York. Um, yeah, the Pennsylvania Packet reported that the uh, HMS Roebuck was driven ashore by a French man-of-war near Cape Henlopen and deserted by her crew, but it wasn't. Um, and then the new envoy was Monsieur Girard, who had been brought over by this thing. The packet stated, it is impossible to describe the joy that appeared in every good man's countenance on this conspicuous occasion that he had been conducted to an elegant apartment provided for him in Market Street. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's starting to ramp up here. This is, uh, you 70, know, 78 seventeen seventy eight. Um and then, then on the Monday the thirteenth, uh Colonel Melchar came to try to rent her house. And then Kenze came to ask me for the stable. I let him have it. paid there and fifteen pounds this day passed off well. And and it goes on and let's see. Um and then Mr. Dickinson who if you if you watch uh oh What was it called? The the, uh, John Adams uh, uh, mini series that was on HBO. Dickinson. This is the Dickinson that stood up. He was the Quaker, and he was the one who who stood up and didn't want to go to war. Didn't want to do this. Wasn't even going to agree to all this. You know, and and he was at the convention, and he just he just couldn't go for this, and if you read, um, you know, things like the Federalist Papers and all that, and you know, how it's different, he was the, the farmer uh, that wrote his his opinion, so he was visiting her too, let's see, um, and then, oh, there go the dogs. Excuse the dog. Uh, okay, John Lawrence and Joe Redman came in the evening with Israel Pemberton. He told me he heard I could not recover Dower and altered his discourse entirely. Bill Turner and his wife heard J. G. Joseph Galloway and my child as well. The French fleet blocks up New York, which is why they couldn't get to England right away, and they had to stay in New York for quite a quite a while. Um. Let's see. It goes on. Uh, all right. Now, this is Tuesday, the 21st. First, Cookie Jones came in the morning to tell me the men was, were at Shoemakers yesterday, Mrs. Jones here, and about 2 o'clock they came. One Smith, a Hatter, and Colonel Will, and one Shriner and a Dutchman. I know not his name. They took an inventory of everything, even to broken china and empty bottles. Um. I left nurse with them and called Sidney Howell and sat at the door with her. Mrs. Irwin and Mrs. Jones went about with them. I had such spirits that I appeared not uneasy. They told me they must advertise the house. I told them they may do as they please, but till it was decided by a court, I would not go out unless by the force of a bayonet. But when I knew who had a right to it, I should know how to act. I sent three times for Lewis, but he did not come. Sent for Ben Chu, he came but thought I talked too high of these men though he himself had advised me to say all I did say, but that of the force of a bayonet. In short, he acted far from a friend, and I see plainly is rather cold and cares little where we are, brought to beggary, so he is out of his free. He tells me I can't stay in the house, yet on my saying, where should I go? Never offered to take me in, nor did Molly Craig, who was here, and Peggy Jones. No one has offered me a house to shelter me, but Bessie Jones behaves the best of all. Dan Rose and Joe Redmond here in the afternoon, oh God, what shall I do? There is no dependence on the arm of flesh, nor have I one hope in this world, nor anything to rely on and I'm afraid how my child and husband came out of New York. All hope is over, okay, next morning she's ill Israel Ben Burton here, but couldn't to could not see him Lewis here. He gives me no hope of saving anything and behaves so. Exceeding cold and disrespectful, that I find my ten guineas is thrown away. Nor does he seem to try to do anything for it. Mrs. White came to see me, and I was very glad to see her. Sydney Howell and Betty Morris here, that we had a little talk. Hugh Hughes here sent for Mr. Dickinson. Last night, and he told me he would look over ye law to see if I could recover my own estate. And this evening, he came and told me I could not recover dowry, and he feared my income and my estate was forfeited. Likewise, and yet no, uh, and yet no trial would be of service, but advised me to drop a petition to the Chief Justice McCain for the recovery of my mistake, and refused a fee in the politest manner, but begged I would look on him as my sincere friend and told me he would do any do me any service to the utmost of his power. I think he behaves much better than Chu, so I find I am a beggar indeed. I expect every hour to be turned out of doors, and where to go I know not. No one will take me in, and all ye men keeps from me with. I assured that my husband and child was happy. Nothing could make me very wretched, but I am fled from this, a pestilence. Um, let's see. Let's see. Uh, well, and he very calmly told me he presumed, oh, Owen Jones and Mr. West said he presumed I would not go from my house unless I was carried out. I told him I would, for there was not, a man, but would sneak and fly from me in time of trouble. Nobody offers to serve me or take me in. Will' here in the evening and ruined Mr. Craig here at night, and it goes on like that for a while because um she's she's not getting anywhere she She has people coming to tell her that you know she can't recover anything that they've already taken. and you know, she's just staying in her house waiting for them to show up to kick her out. Uh, let's see. And then, you know, people are starting, you know, her husband's a traitor. And people are, are, you know, her good friends are are even a little wary around her. And she's noticing the coldness of people. And, you know, no one's offering to take her in, you know. she. she <laughs> So it was a very, very tense and, and and touchy time for her and the people around her. Um, and she's, she's very, very... Uh, it says, um, I sent for Mr. Chu and desired him to come between 3 and 4 o'clock. His answer was short. It is very well, but he never came. I talked very freely to Molly about their cold behavior. And very uneasy, as I think he is set against me and will do me hurt instead of service. I'm very miserable. Uh, all things, all things dreadful and gloomy. Private enemies worse than open ones. And she was so ill she took an anodyne last night and had no rest. Um, Let's see. Despite, and this is a footnote, despite the activities and precautions of the authorities, messages were constantly being carried between the loyalists in New York and their wives who had remained behind in Philadelphia. These were occasionally intercepted, as in the case of Mrs. Shoemaker's um, and and Galloway's letter to his sister. These were at times artfully concealed, and tradition has it that letters passed between Mr. and Mrs. Galloway concealed in quills this is from the notes of Sir Charles Burton. One letter from Galloway has been preserved. It was written on a tish, piece of tissue paper about the size of a postage stamp. Um, let's see, who was that? Oh, and Jones and his wife, they invited me to come to their house if I was turned out. Peel came to tell me I must get 300 a year or move out of my house. I told him I would go out, send for Lewis, and he and Mr. Tooth concluded I should claim my own estate and in better spirits. uh, Let's see, and people came and visited. So, you know, there's no news for a while. Um, And, okay, he's, he was, let's see. Sent for Owen Jones, this is the 31st, sent for Owen Jones and told him I was resolved to rent this house. He approved of it. Sidney Holland, Pat Biles, and Crosdale's wife called any President Brian, Brian, and he behaved well and seemed to think my estate would not be meddled with, told me that Thompson said I should be pushed out of my house. Mrs. Lawrence and Governor Morris, they both seem unconcerned. She is too despicable for my notice. Fuller here at night and Owen Jones. I sent for Peel and told him I would stay in the house, and Owen Jones will be my security. Um, so, you know, she she was she's up and down because people are coming in and telling her all sorts of different things. From one, like from one day to the next, she doesn't know if she can keep this or or not that. Uh, um, and so, I I'm just shouting here. Uh, Oh, this is, this is great. This is on Saturday. This is August the 1st. I was pretty cheerful in the afternoon Mrs. Wharton sent to, to know if I would take a ride. She called on me just before sunset, and I told her I had taken the house and all my little concerns. She seemed very reserved, but when she found I was not like to trouble them, she cleared up. We went all the way We went all of the back ways of the town and rid three miles around. You have to excuse me. She doesn't use much um, punctuation, and she has very creative spelling, so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get through this here as best I can. Just as we came to 2nd Street, she ordered a man to go to our house. I then said I was in hopes I should have seen a uh, friend Whart- Wharton as I wanted to speak to him. and had no way of coming. They had taken her coach. Her, her, uh, her. She had a, a very nice coach, and they confiscated that, so she has no way of of getting uh, around. She said, "I tell thee, friend Galloway, thee can't go now, as it is like to be a gust, a gust of wind." I said, "There was no prospect of a gust." She then said, "I left Rachel and Sophy Hudson at our house and promised to take them home." I then said I was sorry I should take her from her company, but I wanted to see her husband if it was but for five minutes as I had no other opportunity of seeing him. She then told me she did not know of Hudson's coming when she sent to me and and thought I wanted to ride. I replied, the only inducement I had for coming today was to see her husband, but since it was so disagreeable, my going to her house, I wish he would call on me, and if I had known I could not see him, I would not have come. She replied, "'Why was he not glad of he ride? I thought he would be glad to ride out. I told her that such rides as this I wouldn't give a pin for, and the exercise of riding three miles and being out half an hour would contribute but little to my health. But my affairs would soon be settled, and if they allowed me my estate, I should be able to keep a carriage of my own and be beholden to anyone. And if they did not let me have my own, I should not be here.' She then repented, "'Not here? Why? Where will we go?' I said to my husband and that nobody had need to fear that I should trouble them, for I would live on bread and water before I would accept a favor that I could not repay. She then said she was glad I kept the house. I told her if I had not, I would not have troubled my friends but for a few days till I could look about me, for I knew the Philadelphians too well to expect any favors, and I could feel and had been hurt by the slight that I had received from some that called themselves friends, but I would have nothing but I would, what I could pay for She then made an excuse that their horses would not stand. But I know that they had stood when she chose to go, therefore I treated it with contempt. And as she saw I was vexed, she pressed me to send for her carriage, which I refused, and told her I may now never see her husband more. She said, I will send for thee some other time. When we came to our door, I desired her to give my love to her husband and tell him I wanted to speak to him much, but had no way of coming there for begged he would call on me when they rode out. Sam Rhodes helped me out of the carriage. I went in without thanking this great little woman for the ride. I was not gone more than three-quarters of an hour. <clears throat> Excuse me. My heart was ready to burst at the mean figure. I must cut in begging to go to another person's house and be told I could not. I told F. Rhodes the whole story. Then John Thompson came, and I told him of it. And then Chu came in. In the meantime, and I gave him some hints, but not the whole Grace Townsend. But not the whole Grace Townsend called Sydney. Hall called at night. I told her the whole story. I was so mortified and troubled. I could not sleep all night about it. So you can see it's getting to her, and and the the different reactions, or you know, the way that she her friends are treating her or acting, uh, is getting to her. I mean, imagine her whole world. Now she. And you have to, um, when when uh, when you think of her, you know, here's this very well-to-do woman who's always had a, a prominent place in society, had all the comfort that she could ever want, and, you know, everybody to do her bidding, and if she said she wanted to see someone... She would see them, and it, you know she she had her carriage, so all she had to do was call the call the stable, you know, person, and and the, the carriage would be brought for her. Now, this is a woman who wrote a poem about being married and kissing good, you know, your freedom goodbye. You you know, no more liberty, being stuck with with this husband. So you can see how. She is so frustrated and hurt and, and scared. I mean, um, there she you know she's she's on the right side. She thinks you know being supportive of the crown, and uh, all of a sudden her whole world, you know, it's it, it's like you know she 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 her husband and and her her one surviving child, who I think she was about eighteen. At this time, seventeen or eighteen, has left. They're blockaded in New York. She has people coming to her house all the time. Some saying, "Oh, you're gonna lose everything." Others saying, "Oh, no, no," you know. And um, <laughs> I mean, and this is this is just one month. You know, this is just the the first month she was she was writing since he left. Well,
1: the full reason for her to stay was the house. And if she's going to lose that, then her staying there was for nothing.
0: Right. Right. And and it's hers. She inherited it. Her husband's, you know, now a traitor uh, to the assembly, the, Philadelphia, or the Pennsylvania Assembly has branded him a traitor. And what do you, I mean, oh, I, I, it's just amazing to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. To really to to get inside the life of a of a you know what we would consider the enemy. You know she was considered the enemy because she was a supporter of the crown. Whether she was really into the whole you know politics things or not, it, I don't really know. I mean she grew up with politics. In her family, so she was well versed in it. But what her, um, you know, she she, it she was for the crown. I mean, that was her, her family. Were crown people? You know, they they were supporters of the crown, and, and they believed that that was the way to be. And here now, she's the enemy, and her husband's the traitor. <laughs> oh my lord! the more i read her journal it's just her diary if you really i can't read it all i mean it it goes on for a year and and she's um and I'm, you know i think uh what time is it now 8:40 thereabouts um my time um here in texas so we have what you know about 15 minutes left to go um I don't know how, how much further you want me to I mean, this is a long journal. It really is. I, I There's no way I can read the whole thing but just take bits and pieces from it. But, I mean, there's so much that's going on. It's hard not to read all of it. Well, we have about, hold on, we look on talk shoes.
1: In like, case okay, their clock is different than ours. Oh, let's see. Uh, no, they
0: don't even have a clock. Ha! <laughs> Yeah, I have thirty-eight out of my tablets. Yeah, yeah. Got yeah. about, about twenty minutes. Yeah. Well, um, uh, there's there's, there's a, a let's see. Okay. Okay. Now on on the third of August, which you know two days later. Um. It writes that uh, uh, Daniel Mifflin came in the evening and I received a letter from the president informing me that my estate was confiscated during the life of Mr. Galloway, sent for Ben Chu. He desired me to send for the president, ask him some questions that gave me no comfort. Um, Thomas Stapler here the next day, but no money. Talk to him about it. I was very careful, and Warner was very kind. I have a great love for him. Uh, the President, Bryan was here in the morning. He said he was no lawyer, but the law that was in his letter he had from George Frost. Uh Okay, Warner Mifflin was a slave-holding Quaker who emancipated all of his slaves in 74 and 75, getting payment for each year. They had served beyond the age of 21. He was also much opposed to the war, and as a brand new wine, he personally interviewed both Washington and Howe in order to register his protest. Most of his life was devoted to positive abolition. But here is Counsel to Mrs. Galloway, 1778, uh, Philadelphia, August the 3rd. Madam, I have not been inattentive to your discourse, which you honored me with some days since at your house. Business has prevented this answer being earlier made. When a lady marries, unless by a special reserve of her lands in the hands of trustees made before the contract, the use and profits of the real estate belonging to her rests in her husband for and during their joint lives, and if children be born then for his life. This estate, as so acquired by wedlock the gentleman can sell. It may be seized by creditors and applied to their relief, and it may be lost by a taint, and, and then it devolves to the public as a forfeiture. But the moment the husband dies, it returns to the widow, or if she be deceased, to her children and other heirs. This, the gentlemen of the law say, is the case, as well here as in England. However, they remarks, that corruption of blood, which in Europe destroys the heritable capacity of the children and gives a father, father's lands to the state, even where he is only tenant for life, is abolished in Pennsylvania. And further, that in every case of Atem attain for treason, support for the wife and children shall be awarded by the judges of the Supreme Court out of the estate of the husband. What may be thought proper in your case, I profess myself very ignorant, yet it is probable it will be most convenient for you and the public, too, that such allowance be made out of the paternal estate lost by you for the uncertain term of Mr. Galloway's natural life. No one can more regret the occasion of this communication, but believe me to be, madam, your most obedient servant, Signed, George Bryan who was uh, the president of the um assembly whatever you call it uh, and then Peel and Smith came to tell me I must go out of my house I told P. L. I I had taken it of him he answered another gentleman had let it before to the Spanish ambassador and I must go out I told them I would take the advice of my friends. They said, out, I must go, but agreed to call tomorrow about my house and goods. Then for Owen Jones and Israel Pemberton, Owen told me he would not have me go out but consult my friends. In the afternoon, the fellows came and appraised the goods, and a French council was here to take the house. And I told him, as I found they would not let me stay in it, he had my voice in preference to the Spaniards. I talked to the men about it, but they confessed, Yet the house was not let at all, but said I must go out. I went to Debbie Morris's and was in my spirits as I had another note from J G. Um and I just lost my place. Oh, there was Denise Buckley and Joe Powell's wife, the two other women. Debbie told me she would not leave the house and was carried out. Um my spirits began to flag spoke to the men about the Frenchman, but they would not give me no answer. Israel, Tim Burton, and Owen Jones here. Israel blamed me for consenting to let the Frenchman it, and said I would not take his advice. But Betty Shoemaker would be advised to stay in her house. He would speak to Budnot and told me not to go till forced, for they had no right to turn me out. Owen Jones was present, but Israel minds Becky Shoemaker, but takes no care of me. Becky Shoemaker was also uh, a woman who was, at that time, in in Philadelphia, losing her house. Um, Mrs. Straker and someone, Wilson, who was going to New York, Major Edwards here. Okay, so she gets a letter from the, the president of the assembly who says, I'm no lawyer but this is the counsel that was given me and I I don't know if you understood it, but basically her money will come out of her husband's, um, you know, wealth, even though a lot of that wealth was hers before she married him. So that is, okay, and it's, Don Juan Morales, who was at this time spoken of as a Spanish gentleman of distinction and high character, he later appeared in his full role of ambassador from the court of Spain. He's the the Spanish ambassador who's going to rent her house. That someone else went about letting out to the Spanish ambassador, didn't ask her. Oh, and then they she there's a fire. She hears of this great fire in New York. Um the next week. Uh the great fire in New York and, and doesn't know if her her husband and, and daughter are anywhere near it. And they, they said that no, it wasn't uh a great fire and, and uh Galloway and, and Betsy were fine. Um now, and just after this, the next day, Teal and Will come to let me know I must go out um, on Monday morn, for they would give the Spaniard possession, sent for Robert Irwin and Owen Jones to find Owen knew nothing, what Israel has done, and he had not seen two, so I, I fall. No one was here to hear the warning given. Wrote a few words to J.G., went to Pops, and gave her the note. The house was full of pops Brothers, and though I was so distressed, not one of them answered me one word or took a loose notice of me. Sent to Owen Jones again, went from Pops to Debbie Morris. She told me she would take me in if they turned me out, but told me not to let them. hold comfort. John Thompson here in the evening and said, but not without of town. Owen went for Ben Chew and Johnny Pemberton came a little in the evening. Sufi and Becky, down St. Jane, though they must think how... And though they must think how distressed I was, yet they sat and talked as if nothing was the matter. At night came Ben Chew and the after being twice sent for. They concluded to the president to go to the president, but fear it is too late for nothing of Israel. So by indifference of my friends, I am to be turned out of doors. They support Shoemaker, but fear not if I think I'm wretched. And it goes on like that for days. Um, and she became very ill. And uh, then, uh, let's see. Let's see. Okay. Uh, the Spanish and his attendants came on the 10th and took possession of my house. I was taken very ill and obliged to lay down and sent them word I could not see them. They went everywhere below stairs, and the standard offered to let me choose my own bedchamber, but I sent them no message but was very ill upstairs. And between 2 and 3 o'clock, the last went away. They at last went away. Um, Peel told Nurse now that they had given the Spanish gentleman possession. They had nothing more to do with it, but took the key out of the front parlor door and locked me out and left the windows open. Jane Nathers brought me some gauze from my dearest child and told me Mr. G fell from Mr. Lowe's house at the fire and hurt himself, but not dangerously that if an act of oblivion would take place, he would come home, if not go to England. This thinks my spirits very much. Sent <clears throat> for Israel, Pemberton and told him they had taken forcible possession of my house. He advised me to stay in the house and take the lock of the door. Tom Ricker and a whole bunch of other people uh, came at night and said I must go out of my house. And Molly Craig told him she had a mind to get in at the window and take the lock off the door. And the back of the window he told her if she had... He would be hung at last. I coaxed him, and he seemed as if he was desirous I should have my estate, but was violent in respect to their laws and told me the lawyers flattered me for I must give up possessions or I could have no maintenance. Maintenance means uh, uh, an allowance, you know, money to live on. I was frightened and would not have the lock taken off, but went to General Arnold and told him how exposed my house was, and he kindly sent a guard. Mrs. Craig went with me. He treated me with great politeness, and I went to bed in better spirits. John Roberts sent to jail. And this is, you know, in the next few days, several people, several men were sent to jail, and some hung for being traitors. Now, he was, uh, John Roberts, who along with Abraham Carlyle, was arrested, tried, and convicted of giving aid to the enemy. Both men were undoubtedly innocent of the charges, and while they had accepted offices under British administration in Philadelphia, their services had been entirely of a humanitarian character. They were executed to appease the clamors of the extreme Whigs, meaning the patriots, the rebels. Uh, so, again, these were the, the really hard years during, you know, 78 and 79 um was really the the it was the harshest time I think in the war. Um, it was in the mid states, and this is when the you know the British were were uh, in New York and and then in Philadelphia for a while, and, um, and then the Southern theater started. So this is the real and, and this is the time when when our uh, you know the Continental Army, I'm the Massachusetts, so I call it our army. Um, the Continental Army was in great straits. You know, they didn't have any food. They were walking around, uh, you know, Valley Forge um, at, in the winter. Uh, at this time, they didn't have much of anything, and George Washington was, was very concerned and trying to get to Congress to do something, and they didn't have anything to do anything with. So, um, yeah, yeah it, it was a tough time all around the country, basically. You know, I'm real, I'm kind of confused though. Yes. Why were the Spanish in Philadelphia? You know, I don't know that kind of um, that kind of. Uh... Well, Spain Spain fought for us too. Spain was supportive of us. I think they they sent well they not might not have fought for us but they supported us because they hated England too. <laughs> And remember, oh,
1: that's, why, that's why I was curious about yeah. why they would be there.
0: He did become an ambassador for Spain. So there's the gentleman, the Spaniards. Um, but, yeah, we can look that up, too. Um, I didn't even, um, I mean, it crossed my mind, but I didn't go into research on it, but we can do that, too. I mean, this is just an amazing story. Uh, the things that come out of this one woman's experience um, Uh, experience. I'm thinking we're getting down to the wire here. Well, how much more do we have? Oh, about 200 pages. (laughs)
1: Well, we're not going to be able to go through all of them.
0: No, no. No, and I haven't been. I'm on page 49. So, um, I will will make note of uh, the pages where um, it really gets... You know, the, the, I will take out the the important things if we want to take this into next week. No, I no, I think
1: I think we've made our point. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, in but shape. I do want to know. Do you do you know when she died? Well, go back to the woman's blog and we can see yeah. when. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well wait. A minute. I'm gonna. I'm right there. So hold on. Okay. Uh-huh. Good. I got that. Okay. Um. All right, this is from the Women's History blog. We're going to end with this. Grace, from England, Joseph Galloway attempted to persuade the Pennsylvania Assembly to return his property, but in vain. His petitions to return to America after the revolution were denied as well, and he was never reunited with his wife. Grace Broughton Galloway died in Philadelphia in February sixth, seventeen eighty two. So, um she, she ended up staying in Philadelphia. That's what I really wanted to for for people to know. Although histories of the American Revolution commonly celebrate the victors and the sacrifices of the Patriots, Grace Galloway's diary reminds us that a large number of Americans paid a terrible price, especially wives of Tories for opposing America's war for independence. Her experiences illustrate the challenges loyalists faced when they remained in the colonies during the American Revolution. Her wartime diary reveals how the absence of male family members and the hardships of military conflict transforms women's daily lives. For Grace, American American independence meant poverty, abandonment, loss of social precedent, and the devastating disappearance of the pre-war world she had known. In time, some of Grace's lands were restored to her daughter, Betsy. Joseph Galloway died August 29, 1803. She died 1702, and he died like 10 years later almost.
0: At Watford,
1: mm-hmm. England, a contender of the crown and an object of scorn to his countrymen. But I'm saying, you know, this whole stress took a toll on her and because she was always saying she was sick.
0: Yes, yes, it did. She she lost her health. Um, we have a, a minute. Just let me read the the last um the last entry. It's not very long. Okay. First should, I, first, should I claim and they grant me the whole? I then made myself a subject to the state, and by owning their authority, subject myself to all the penalties of their laws, and thereby banish myself from my husband and child or render myself liable to an attainder. Secondly, if they grant me only a maintenance, I should then become their pensioner and liable to the same penalty. And should they be inclined to litigate it, they may draw me into a tedious and fruitless lawsuit and involve me in great trouble. But any claim or partition, I think would not be granted. The whole must be mine or I can have none. I fear that to purchase it will run me greatly in debt, and the taxes are so high I could clear little by it, and even this would keep me here, for I have no friend to ask for me so must leave it, as I am determined to go from this wicked place as soon as I hear from J.G., and not by my own impatience, put it out of my power to leave this bottom. But I be content to stay, I believe I may nearly carry my point, but though I will and have no inclination to be tried for treason. And attempting to get off now, they may, they may give me a passport on my promise not to return. But then I should be kept here or tried for my life if I attempted to go. And write of a tender and a right writ of a tender, tender brought against me and my whole estate confiscated, for they would be glad of an excuse so to do. Therefore, I'm determined to sit still. And should I not live to get my dear child and Mister Galloway, let this be shown them as my reason for I am friendless and alone and nothing reigns here but in stress. How so sad. I mean that is just it just broke my heart when I read that. This
1: you is know. definitely one of the most tragic women we've ever done.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh it's just oh I mean she was just like abandoned. Totally. Uh, her husband did try to get her to come but, you know, she you no know, you know, she she went back and forth and it and, and finally you know, it sickened her. Uh, literally. But if you wanna if you wanna you can look up just just look up the diary of Grace Groudon Galloway, put it into your search engine and the PDF will come up of this, this wonderful book. I believe it was written in nineteen thirty one and it has her whole her whole diary, so you can go through her year. Um, Okay, we have two minutes left, so do you want to take us out? Okay, well, very good. Um, Oh, yeah, uh, the president has been speaking. I love it how it came from the Pentagon. Uh, Let's pray that our troops, our kids in uniform, um, aren't put in more danger than they're already in, and could we please pray to? the Lord above, that uh, our leaders, the ones that uh, we're we're trying to get elected for 2016, do have a jolt of, um, you know, God wisdom or something, so that more families don't have to grieve the killing of their family members from terrorists who are radical Islamists, Islam, Muslims jihadists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, And that are, you know, that we don't have to fight this war because I'm really thinking that uh, the race is going to match. But anyways, pray for those of our children in uniform who are still in harm's way and the special ops who are they're (laughs) just pray for them, especially. And uh, our best here at home that are homeless or having a hard time. And as always, Good night, Loki. We're holding the flame for you.